Hey, welcome to another episode of the Scrum WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley. I am here at the Omni Parker House with my colleague Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Greetings. And I think a little explanation is in order. We don't usually come to the Parker House, at least we have not to date. We're here because there's a great big chess tournament organized by the fine people at Mass Inc., and we are hoping that, what, what's the best way to put it, that we might swing by after you and I talk and then after we talk with our special guests and harvest some ideas from the Mass Inc. Brain Trust? Crash the party and uh, steal their brains. I like that. That's more candid. So this is the first episode that we've done since the midterm elections. Peter, now that the dust has settled and you've had a chance to rest up and look for bigger meanings in everything that transpired, whether it's nationally or locally, one week on, I'm wondering what sense you have made of the midterms and what they mean for either Massachusetts politics or national politics or both. My, my thoughts run more to the press. Um, and the reason I still, I'll, I'll tell you why I say that in a second. Just this afternoon, looking for the umpteenth time at, at the final results, it, it really occurred to me that it's not that we in the media do a bad job, but I don't think we're properly calibrated to the public at the moment. And here's what I mean. Think of all the screaming headlines we've had, you know, from the right and the Republican Party about... Massachusetts going to hell in a handbasket, and even more, um, the very pointed and effective assaults by progressives from the Democratic Party. Then look at the results. The results, you know, who's the state's biggest vote getter? Bill Galvin. Who's the second biggest vote getter? No surprise, uh, Attorney General Healy. Who's the third biggest vote getter? No surprise there, Governor Baker. And what it got me thinking about is, look, the Democrats are the second biggest political party in Massachusetts. The independents, with roughly 2.5 million, are the, are the people who rule the roost. Galvin, Healy, Baker, all got clearly over a million, you know, a million or so independent votes to get where they're going. Now, the independents have a, it, it's difficult because they're not organized. But I would argue that the moderate Democrats at the State House probably do a better job of representing them than they're given credit for. And that the, the voice that the progressives have, which is very organized, uh, very targeted, is overplayed in the press. Okay, so you're saying that the press's framing of this election season relied too much on stark standard partisan tropes that might be applicable in other parts of the country but don't really fit the reality here is that a fair paraphrase yeah but not just the election the the whole two years since charlie baker was elected now two years from now it might be very different from where it is now but you know that's my vantage point from today all right peter kansas thanks for that insight you're going to recuse yourself now, at least for a little bit, while we turn to our two guests, WGBH News State House correspondent Mike Dean and his compatriot in the halls of the State House, sort of. You gave a little headwag there. Maybe compatriot's the wrong word. Competitor, uh, rival, Katie Lannon of State House News Service. Thank you guys both for being here. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. And I'll take compatriot. 
So Mike Dean, I got to start off by giving you credit for shaping the basically entire conceit of this episode, because you're the one who came up with the idea of coming to the Omni Parker house, right? Yes, that was my idea because uh, people are already here. So like Peter said earlier, we're going to crash a party and steal their brains. And you also had the idea of getting you and Katie to talk about the serious, substantial, non-superficial implications of the elections for policymaking on Beacon Hill, right? I know that's not how you put it. You had a more elegant formulation, but basically that was your that was your concept, right? Let's talk about what the elections actually mean for how stuff gets done on Beacon Hill moving forward. Yeah, and there are some um, clear impacts and some that we aren't really going to see how it works out. You know, I think the biggest one right off the bat is Charlie Baker, term two. Is this a mandate? You know, does he think of it as a mandate from the voters to really enact his policy agenda? Do, do the Democrats, just Speaker DeLeo, think that it's a policy mandate to, to get his agenda across? Um, what is his policy agenda, many would ask. Uh, the governor definitely has a few items he wants to push through, but they look very similar to what we've already seen from Baker. It's kind of like version two, version three of bills he's already passed. So what are the pieces of legislation that either are currently pending or are going to be brought up that will give us the answers to the questions that you just posed. Katie, what's your take? Well, I mean, the things we've heard the governor talk about so far um, has been very broad strokes. And like Mike said, they're all issues we've seen him tackle before, whether that be housing, opioids, education, and transportation. Now, education and transportation were issues that Jay Gonzalez kind of made a centerpiece of his campaign, calling for new revenue to fund improvements there. And we don't know yet what the the governor's strategy is going to be in those areas, other than, as he said, to do more of what they've been doing. For people who don't know the building as well as you two do, and that includes me, it's probably worth giving people a quick refresher on things he's proposed that maybe didn't make it through in the previous legislative session, like his idea of changing the way the state does zoning to ramp up the production of affordable housing. Katie, can you talk people through exactly what the governor's approach is and maybe a little bit about why he didn't get what he wanted last time around? I actually just finished writing about this before coming over here, so this was a well-timed question and I promise not a plant. Um, The governor proposed a bill that would Well, it seeks to incentivize um, housing protection at the local level, and one of the things it does is it would lower the threshold required to approve zoning changes from a two-thirds supermajority to a simple majority. You know, there are communities where they say they've got these proposals for new developments that would require zoning changes, and they're coming either just shy or they're making it just over. And people from the Boston area really want to see a regional approach to new housing production. They don't want to be carrying the whole burden. But you've got people who are worried about an erosion of local control if this goes through. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are worried this doesn't go far enough that, yeah, it might spur housing production, but it doesn't get at the core issue of affordability. If all you're building is luxury condos, that won't help working families um, is their kind of point of view there. So there's been some talk about still trying to move that bill in the next couple months, really the last few weeks of this legislative session at this point. Um, And if that doesn't get over the finish line, there's interest both, um, I think, from the governor's office and among lawmakers. It's starting from scratch on that in the new term. Is it fair to say that that was the biggest disappointment legislatively of, of Baker's first term, that he wasn't able to get this through? Or am I overstating it there? 
It was the, probably his biggest personal disappointment for this particular session, this, this, this cycle. Over the entire four-year term, I don't think you could really say that. He's pretty much gotten what he's wanted out of the legislature. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the disappointments that he may have had. Everything's been passed one way or another. It's not exactly what he wanted, you know. Um, so just for instance, in this last opiate bill, which opiates is definitely a subject Baker will return to, but in this second opiate bill of the Baker era, he came back to the idea of involuntary holds. That's something that was proposed in the first one. Democrats rejected it. Proposed in the second one. Democrats thought about it a little. They took it a little bit further uh, and then rejected it again. This would be, you know, for 48 hours involuntary hold in a hospital so that um, OD victims don't immediately pop back out onto the street after being released from the, the OD treatment. Uh, and that gets them in the door to longer-term treatment. That's the idea. Uh, a lot of folks think that it goes too far, violating the rights of, of those patients. That is something, you know, there's always one or two items in a Baker bill that the Democrats reject out of hand and don't really ever entertain. But Baker keeps going at it, keeps going at it. And I'm interested to see if in second term they'll be more willing to kind of entertain those those. I don't want to call them extreme ideas. I don't think Governor Baker has too many extreme ideas, but there's always an item or two that stands out that you think, oh, well, DeLeo and Spilker are going to reject this. But we don't know. Maybe he'll fight a little harder this time. So from the vantage point of the State House, what will that calculus look like on the part of legislators? Because it seems to me, as someone who does not know the inner workings of the building well, it seems to me like there's two dissonant ways that legislators can look at it. A, Charlie Baker just won this incredible landslide victory. He's clearly got a popular mandate. The people want him to do what he said he's going to do, so let's help him out with that. And then conversely, Charlie Baker is probably only going to be here for another four years. He didn't rule out seeking a third term. I kind of felt like he couldn't rule out seeking a third term because he would have then reminded people that he's a short timer, whereas they're going to be in the building for a long time. So I'm not saying he's a lame duck now, but he is not going to be there forever. So am I right that those are the sort of two competing ways for legislators to wrap their brains around how to handle Baker moving forward now? Yeah, I think so. Um, you're going to see kind of different attitudes in the different chambers. For instance, in the House, which has always been far more moderate and far more aligned with Governor Baker, uh, it's, it's very centralized, very top-down. Speaker DeLeo agrees with Charlie Baker, therefore the chamber agrees with Charlie Baker more, t more often than it doesn't. Uh, although a few of those you know, rebuttals that I mentioned before have originated from the House where they've you know, said no to the governor. But things are different in the House now. If, if we've seen in the primary season, not necessarily in this, uh, this general election season, but there were challenges from the left that knocked out a number of prominent Democrats in leadership. So for the entirety of Speaker DeLeo's time as, as Speaker, he has defended purple seats. He has fought against you know, the 2010 Tea Party wave uh, that knocked off a few moderate Republicans, uh, moderate Democrats in, in districts that were turning purple could go red. That happened in 2010. So he's been feverishly keeping those seats blue ever since. Now his people are getting knocked off from the left. That balancing out act, that calculus, and uh, what that means for accepting the governor's Republican proposals is going to make things very interesting. I think DeLeo probably wants to go along with a lot of the policy solutions that Baker is, is promoting, but now he's got to look to his left and see, are these votes going to give people trouble? The way that you know, not taking up secure communities, uh, not really addressing transportation or education funding, 
the way those votes or lack of action really bit some Democrats this uh, primary season. Katie, I want to get your thoughts on how DeLeo is going to move forward. But before I do, I want to play a little bit of sound from one of the people who succeeded in taking on and beating an incumbent from the left, Nika Elugardo, who took out Jeffrey Sanchez, Bob DeLeo's chair of Ways and Means, in the Democratic primary. She was on Basic Black, WGBH's show hosted by Callie Crossley, uh, recently and offered a really stinging assessment of how she sees the Democratic Party in Massachusetts. The Democratic Party is straight up racist. <laughs> the structural racism that we're talking about dismantling is in the party. And this is one of the reasons why it's frustrating to be standing up on the stage of the Democratic Party behind speeches being made about Republicans dividing the country. She also said that the Democratic Party had supported Jeffrey Sanchez in her race against him. I'm not entirely sure what she was talking about there, but do you think that DeLeo is going to be significantly shaken up by the losses of Jeffrey Sanchez and Byron Rushing? Or is this sort of maybe not a blip, something that, that he'll take note of, but that will not create excessive drama in the House and won't really change his MO that much? So when we caught up with the speaker after the primaries in September, after these two important members of his leadership team were knocked out in their primaries, he didn't seem too bothered by it. You know, most House Democrats prevailed in their primaries. There was one other incumbent Democrat, uh, Bob Cazera of New Bedford, who didn't. But he kind of took a almost business-as-usual approach to it. You know, 13 got reelected. I believe the number was 13. Like, that's a good night. Now, whether that is the attitude he carries into a new session um, will be interesting to see. The Democrats do have a supermajority in the House, and they picked up a couple seats this session. So they don't technically have to go along with Baker's policy proposals if they, the House, don't want to, which as we've pointed out, often means if the speaker doesn't want to. Um, and one thing that people have been telling me they're keeping an eye out on are that the two people of color in Speaker DeLeo's leadership team won't be returning next session. That's Jeff Sanchez and Byron Rushing. They were primaried out. Um, so that's another question is what is his leadership team going to look like next year? Will it be more diverse? He's always... Um, put a kind of priority and women lawmakers have talked about this as well on elevating women. Um, will we see more women, more people of color kind of rise through the ranks next session? Mike, you said a few minutes ago, if DeLeo agrees with the governor, then the House agrees with the governor, which struck me as a really nice synopsis of the way the House has done business. Do you think that this whiff of instability on the left could lead the speaker to open things up in a substantive way moving forward. Yes, and actually back to the point Katie just made about the leadership team, what goes into the process of DeLeo agreeing or disagreeing with the governor is not necessarily his own personal political or you know philosophical viewpoint. He does listen to that inner circle. He does listen to the membership. And uh, when you're going to have a difficult vote for the membership, he definitely factors that into his decision making. He gets that advice from that inner circle. We no longer have the two most progressive members of that inner circle. People are going to be looking now towards, uh, for instance, Sarah Peake of Provincetown, probably one of the more uh, liberal folks around DeLeo these days, uh, to kind of carry that banner a little bit. 
Um, but you know, the people he promotes and puts around him do have an influence on the decision making. It is fairly calculated. It's centralized, but it's a it's a Politburo with DeLeo at the head of it more than it is a, a, a democratic or single autocratic way of thinking. So might that change? Might the process itself become democratized? And my impression, again, perennial caveat here as someone who doesn't spend a ton of time in the building is that by the time a debate occurs on a given measure, you already know what the outcome is going to be. You can tell me if I'm wrong about that, but if I am correct about that, might that change? Might you see debate before the outcome has been decided? Um, no, <laughs> you're not going to see debate before the outcome is decided. Uh, one of the, the things that I've been working on right now is talking to people on the other side of the ideological spectrum here, with conservatives. The most conservative members of the House got knocked off uh, on election day, Jim Lyons and uh, Jeff Deal gave up his seat to run for U.S. Senate. They were perhaps the two most prominent and outspoken members of kind of the far right edge of the Republican caucus in the House. What that accomplished was the closest thing to debate that the House gets to. When Republicans stand up and uh, the Republican caucus calls for roll calls, calls for debates on amendments on certain items, that was the best result they could hope for, to get Democrats on record rejecting their amendments, rejecting these Republican proposals. Um, those guys are gone now, and, and uh, people are, are looking to the, the, those far-right figures the way they're looking towards the far-left figures to figure out who's going to have that sway, who's going to talk now. I would say that when it comes to Republican amendments, Republican issues to debate, we're going to see things behind closed doors more than we have before. More deals between uh, Minority Leader Brad Jones and Speaker DeLeo's people instead of stuff happening on the floor. So as far as debate happening, you might have more debate in the Democratic caucus because of these progressives. But as far as what goes on the floor of the House, don't go looking for a debate. Katie Lannon, do you agree with Mike's assessment there? I do. I think it's important to note that in either branch, you rarely see a bill brought to the floor unless it, they're very confident it's going to pass. Um, I think we only saw maybe once this session that a bill was pulled at that point and certainly no defeats of a bill you might see amendments defeated um and even in the senate where there is more debate and discussion of bills most bills pass unanimously or overwhelmingly now on the house more of that overwhelming support passage happens kind of in silence uh jim lyons was often one of the only people who would speak on a bill, um, if at all. And his points would at times be, you know, ruled out of order, so he might not even get to say much. And it'll be interesting to see if some of these new faces from the left kind of pick up that mantle in the other direction. There were uh, a handful of candidates running this cycle who took a pledge to um, support calls for more roll call votes to try and get positions recorded. Um, and again, whether any of that shakes out once the new legislature is seated and everyone kind of settles into their routine, that's a different story, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. I'm going to ask a question which might sound really naive, given everything you two have said. I've wondered if there was any challenge that Speaker DeLeo was going to get a challenge, someone else making a credible run for the speakership. Is that a possibility that people should be on the lookout for? No. I, I think that any kind of move like that would make you the ultimate pariah uh, in the House and amongst the Democrats. There's no real 
ambition for someone to make a credible threat to it. I mean, the only person I would think of to do it on a symbolic level would be somebody like Russell Holmes, who's already a pariah in the eyes of DeLeo, um, someone who kind of has his own constituency to, to move forward with. The progressives that are going to have the most sway are the ones who are on the team, people you know, who are potentially going forward. We saw Marjorie Decker, uh, you know, very progressive lawmaker from Cambridge, take a, um, you know, the red flag gun bill out of complete obscurity, play the game, get DeLeo's attention, get enough emphasis on it, and pass it with his blessing and the governor's signature. I think many progressives know that you have to do things within DeLeo's system, and outright challenging that system is not going to be successful. I had wondered if Mike Connolly might potentially be someone who would venture a risky gambit like that. Uh, Katie, should I get my hopes down, tamp down my hopes for some kind of dramatic challenge that I can watch from afar? I mean, that's an interesting idea you kind of float with Mike Connolly. He is one of the people who has been willing to be a little more critical. Um, He's a newer rep, and I think that idea kind of reflects some of what we heard on Basic Black the other night was that some of these women who have run for office um, trying to represent constituencies that don't always have their voices heard are not satisfied with people playing business as usual and might even once they're in the game be looking for new ways to do things. I've got one more question for you too before we go bug the Mass Inc. people uh, and yell at them while they castle or whatever they're doing. Peter might have a follow-up question of, of his own. What should we expect from Karen Spilka in her first full session as state senate president? I would say that if you're looking for opposition to Speaker DeLeo, you're going to find it in the Senate and probably in the form of Karen Spilka more than anything else. Uh, This is a a relationship between the Senate president and the speaker that's always kind of the cornerstone of of how Massachusetts politics works. Sometimes they get along, sometimes they're they're kind of co-equals, sometimes one's up on the other, and uh, with DeLeo being in there for about 10 years now and Spilka just taking over a few months ago, um, people will be looking to her to assert herself and assert the Senate after this kind of tumultuous end of the Rosenberg term that we just saw and the kind of caretaker Uh, end of session that Harriet Chandler kind of saw through over the summer. Uh, This is the time for Spilka to really get out there and assert. I think when you look at issues like school funding, where the Senate passed a far more ambitious, progressive bill than an expensive bill than the House was willing to, um, you're going to see pressure on on the advocates who agree with the Senate onto the House. And whether or not Spilka wields that pressure to the Senate's advantage uh, remains to be seen how aggressive she, how aggressive Spilka wants to be. Yeah, and I think we might see her tip her hand um, when she makes her committee and leadership assignments at the start of the next session, see what direction she's going to go in. It's up to Karen Spilka to kind of turn the page for the Senate on what has been a chaos and scandal-plagued year, and she has the opportunity to kind of remake the policy if she so desires by putting different puzzle pieces in different places. Um, or if she wants to kind of continue on the policy-wise, the track they've been on and keep some of the same people where they've been pursuing, you know, what have been Senate ideas around health care, around education, things like that. You mentioned a little while ago that in the Senate, like in the House, that a bill didn't usually come to the floor unless the outcome was pretty certain. I always had the impression that Stan Rosenberg was, at least for a long time, 
liked and respected by the members of his uh, of his body because he took a very decentralized approach in contrast with Speaker DeLeo. Again, if my premise is right, uh, if it's wrong, tell me if it's wrong. And if it's correct, I'm wondering if Spilka is going to take a similar tack. Yeah, she's indicated she actually wants to be more collaborative than uh, Stan Rosenberg had been. And that was one of his centerpieces was what he called a shared leadership model. She, I think, said at one point that that might even be too top down. So we haven't really gotten a chance to see yet what a Spilko leadership style would look like. But I, I expect that kind of collaborative approach that had been very well liked and appreciated by the membership. All right. Katie Lannon. Mike Dean, thank you for your insights into what people should be looking for in the State House in the next couple of years. Should we go hassle the chess players? Let's do it. Peter Kadzis, do you want to act as field producer here? Yeah. So who should we who should we try to get? Gin Dumpsius seems like a reasonable candidate to hit up for his his thoughts. You're doing this on the horse race, but we're all collegial here. So we were talking to Mike and Katie about how they think the outcomes of the midterms are going to affect the way Beacon Hill proceeds in okay. the next couple of years. Any thoughts on that? I will say I, I, I'm a pretty big skeptic about the term political capital and coattails and everything. Um, I think this, this last came up when the governor was on the losing side of question two. The, that was the ballot question on charter schools. I think it was question two. It, I, don't, I don't think it really affected how he uh, worked on Beacon Hill because he had all these relationships, which also played a role in him winning all, you know, by, in, by pretty interesting margins some of these cities and towns. So I think a lot of it's going to come down to the relationship he has with the state legislature. Uh, Bob DeLeo is coming back. He's, he's going to stay in power, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, I think that matters more than any sort of term like political capital or, you know, quote unquote, coattails. You know, when I did a piece right after uh, Election Day, Peter Ubertasio pointed out to me that despite Baker's colossal margin of victory, that as Peter put it, he really had no coattails at all. When you look at at least statewide races, that he wasn't able to bring Republicans along with him, in part because his brand of Republicanism is so different than everyone else's. Um, do you think he is going to keep going with this? I just want to get along with the legislature and work with them in a commendable bipartisan way to get stuff done for Massachusetts, or is he going to flex his muscle a little bit? I think he's going to keep working with them. That's that's his style. I mean, the, the coattails thing again. It's it's. I I don't. I'm skeptical of whether the term is actually physical or tangible thing beyond what the the you know people like us like to talk about. Um, the 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 when. We've seen this with, with Romney, and to a certain degree we saw it with, with Patrick. When the governor uh, tries to flex his muscle, um, it doesn't really go anywhere. You know, with, with, Ro with Romney, it was, uh, he actually lost seats, uh, legislative seats that he was trying to, trying to uh, increase. And with Patrick, he tried to get this, this kind of like people's uprising going, and, and that fizzled too. Well, I was just reading, have you read the Jeffrey Tubin piece in The New Yorker about Patrick's possible presidential candidacy. I didn't. Okay, well, I'm sure you will. One of the one of the points he made was it a uh, a transportation bill that Patrick unveiled in his second term when all the legislative leaders said, "What the hell are you talking about? This is the first we've heard of it." 
Yeah, and, and I think I think that's part of it. I think we're Baker. I mean, Baker Baker uh, regularly exchanges messages. Uh, I don't know whether whether it's text based or, or or voicemail based with Bob DeLeo. I mean, when when the governor is in Revere, he makes it a point. Uh, Revere Winthrop. Uh, uh, he makes it a point to reach out to Bob DeLeo. I, I just think it's that kind of thing matters much more. Uh, that's probably going to make some folks unsatisfied when, when you know, when we reporters focus on personalities uh, over policies. Uh, but I think as we've seen on Beacon Hill, things happen because of personalities, how well people work together. So you can't, you can't, uh, you know, Policies don't necessarily always succeed on their own merits or fail on their own merits. A lot of times it comes down to who likes whom or who dislikes whom. Gim Dumpsius of Mass Live and the Springfield Republican. And the Springfield Republican. All right. Thanks, Gim. Andy Metzger. Yes. A noted political reporter. GBH contributor has GBH that. contributor. Yeah. Okay. I would love to get your thoughts on what we have talked with Mike Dean and Katie Lannon and just a moment ago, Gim Dumpsius about, namely how the outcome of this year's midterms um, is going to affect the way business gets done on Beacon Hill moving forward. Do you see any big changes coming as a result of the election cycle we just saw? I think that there is likely to be some changes within the cabinet, which is held pretty steady. Four years is a while for a secretary. It's a very taxing job. and. There's other opportunities out there for cabinet secretaries, and there are people who were, I don't know, I, I'm, this is pure speculation, but I just look at Lawrence Mayer, Dan Rivera, and I wonder, where is he going to wind up in the Baker administration? And I have a couple guesses, but they're all guesses. I don't even know if he will be hired. But What are your guesses? I don't know. I, I think the whole economic development secretariat is a good place to put mayors. I mean, he's got a mayor in there, the former mayor of Gloucester's in that cabinet, and Jay Ash, the former um, city manager of Chelsea's there too. It's kind of a natural spot for someone with the skill set of a mayor to to boost economic development on a local level, but this is pure speculation. I think big picture, probably very little will change, only the relationships will grow stronger between Baker and the legislature, because they didn't hurt him at all when it really mattered when he was on the ballot. I mean, they all endorsed the Democrat, but um, they didn't do much more than that. So I, I think it'll be a very close relationship. There. We were kicking around the question a little bit earlier of whether the wins on the left, John Santiago, Nika Aliugardo, Liz Miranda, whether they might change the DeLeo, the, the DeLeo speakerships yeah, MO. House leadership. Yeah. yeah. Do you, th you think he's going to do things differently at all now that a couple of his top lieutenants, Jeff Sanchez and Byron Rushing, has been, have been knocked out from the left? By necessity. And actually, in my last answer, I completely neglected to consider the House, which that is going to be a huge change. Uh, yeah, he needs to find a new chair of ways and means. There's plenty of other positions in leadership, like Byron Rushing's old job, and other important chairmanships or chairwomanships that he needs to fill, and that absolutely will change the dynamic of the House, because as much as the House is sort of led from the Speaker's office, and it absolutely is, it does matter who the chairs are, and they do have a say. They do get to shape policy. I think a lot of what you saw the last year or so coming out of the House, whether it's criminal justice or even energy bills, probably had a lot to do with Jeff Sanchez being slightly to the left of a few of his colleagues. I got to ask you two 
slightly off topic questions before I let you go and, and play chess. My first question is, do you miss being in the building every day at all? I absolutely miss being in the building. That osmosis, the, I mean, it's like you just absorb facts and gossip and rumors. And so I do miss that, except on days like today, I suppose, where it's rainy and I get to, I, I also love setting my own schedule. So that's, that's been fun. Um, but no, I, I absolutely miss the building and I've been back a couple times. Yeah. My closing question for you in this chess tournament that you are about to participate in, um, who are the favorites here? I think Steve Cazella is a favorite, and I think Steve Cazella, Mass Inc. pollster extraordinaire. Yes, absolutely, yes. Uh, and that's putting it lightly. Andy Metzger, thank you for chatting. Good to see you, as always. Yes, good to see you too, Adam. And with that, it is time to wrap up this episode of the Scrum. Thanks to Mike Dean, Katie Lannon, Gin Dumpsius, Andy Metzger, and of course Peter Kadzis. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. We got production help for this episode from Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.